This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians 18 through 25. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believed. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I didn't go far enough, I just realized, so give me a moment. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate it for us so that we could understand it, Father, because we know without you giving us eyes to see or ears to hear, these words mean nothing but marks on a page. And Father, it is my prayer this morning that we see it in a new light, in a fresh manner, and I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you, and glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. So last week we looked at those first few verses that we threw up on the screen and that I read, and there was a lot of gold in those verses. I hope that we were able to see a lot of that. Essentially, Paul was talking about two separate groups. If you remember that, he was talking about the first group who believes that the cross is either a stumbling block or folly, foolishness. And yet we have another group who believes that the cross is the wisdom and power of God into salvation. So those two groups are what Paul is speaking or writing about. And they are contrasting groups. And they are contrasted between those who are perishing... Those who are perishing see the cross as a stumbling block or as foolishness. And those who are being saved, those who are being saved, see the cross as the power and wisdom of God to salvation. So very contrasting viewpoints, and they see it through entirely different lenses. Now you might ask yourself, why do some people see the cross as foolishness? And yet others, those that are being saved, see it as wisdom and power why does that happen 
how are there such different views? And you may have them in the same family. You may have them brothers and sisters or moms and dads. But there is clearly a different view of either seeing the cross as a stumbling block or foolishness or as wisdom and power. Well, we saw Paul answer this very question in verse 24. But to those who are called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there is a critical element in this that changes everything. Because he said, he said, the Jews, it is a stumbling block. They want signs and wonders, and the Greeks want wisdom. And so he, he bunches together the Greeks and the Jews, saying that in and of themselves, they're lost. They are of the group that is lost. And then he goes on down here in verse 24, and he gives us a critical element that is in this. The only difference in the Jews and the Greeks that are perishing, and those that see the cross as the power and wisdom of God, is that the fact that God has chosen them, that they are chosen by God. They are called. So the calling of God is everything. The calling of God makes all the difference in the world with respect to eternity. And I hope that you can see that in this passage because Perhaps unlike any other, it is very evident here that the only difference between those who are passing away and perishing and those who are being saved is the calling of God. But for this calling of God, then everyone believes that the gospel message is foolishness and that it is a stumbling block. The unique thing, and I, we talked about this last week, but the u- unique thing about the calling of God is it supplies what it demands. God gives us what he requires. The calling of God demands faith and it demands obedience. God gives us that. The calling of God supplies that for us. If you recall, I gave an example of calling up someone who was deaf, who could not hear, and inviting them to have dinner with you. And we said that that very idea or notion is rather foolish, right? Number one is they can't hear what I'm saying. Number two is if they could hear, I have no idea whether or not they had a desire to come and eat dinner with me. And there was another critical element that I left out. But I want to go back and add in this morning. Even if they could hear, and even if they did have a desire, I cannot guarantee that they will make it to dinner with me. Right? I can't guarantee that. They they may be involved in an accident. They may have some sort of health emergency. There's no guarantee that they will make it to the dinner that I'm inviting them to. But what if... What if I could give them the ability to hear my voice? What if I could create in them a desire to come and dine with me? What if I could absolutely guarantee that they would make it safely from their home to my dining table? It changes 
everything. So the calling that I give supplies the ability to hear, the desire to come, and the fact that they will make it there on time and in person. I have just described to you the perfect calling of God. He calls us, gives us the ability to hear that call, gives us the desire to follow Jesus, and ensures that we're going to make it to the end. And if that doesn't give you confidence in your salvation, I got nothing else for you. That is the beauty, the majesty, the splendor in God's call. He calls us and he gives us everything to make sure we're going to make it to that end. And that is the confidence in that call. So we turn this morning, as we turn to the passages of this morning, let us look at the question of why. What is the purpose of this call? We say, well, that's easy. That's eternal life. But there's more to it than that. Why does he call us and then supply us with everything that we need to guarantee us we make it to the end? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. So suddenly Paul shifts from speaking in general terms about Jews and Greeks and those that are being saved and those that are perishing to individuals. Consider your calling. I ask us all, consider our calling. Look inward to ourselves. Examine how we got to be where we are for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not many of them were wise in worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. You think about it from a practical standpoint, right? How many of us are the smartest and wisest people in the world? We hesitate to say that not many. How many of us are the most powerful people in the world? Say not many. How many of us has the purest, most royal bloodlines in the world? Not many. And that was the question Paul was posing to the Corinthians. Look at yourselves. God's economy, as I said last week and as I've said before, God's economy is not the same as the world's economy. The world glorifies those who are the smartest people in the world. The world glorifies those who are the most powerful people in the world. The world glorifies those that have the richest heritage and bloodline. Not God. Not God. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that he just turns that upside down. He takes a wrecking ball to that economy. It just doesn't work that way. If the world was in charge of eternal life, there'd be a much different standard, wouldn't there? 
going to have to be so smart, going to have to be so rich, you're going to have to be of such and such bloodline. We're going to put all these qualifications on there that's going to exclude everyone in here. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. The leader, if, if the world was in charge of getting together and making an eternal life, the leader of that group surely wouldn't come into his kingdom riding on a, conk, a donkey or a colt, would he? Can you imagine? We're getting ready to see the coronation of the king here. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's going to happen. And it's going to be something that nobody in here has ever seen before. It's going to blow your mind. But I will promise you that someone with way more power and prestige and bloodline came into this world in a manger. And if that doesn't show you or demonstrate to you how God refutes the ways of the world, nothing else will. Nothing else will. Moreover, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He didn't even have the money to give him a proper grave. Now, granted, he wasn't going to be there long, but nonetheless, he didn't have the money to have a gravesite. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Who chose? God chose. God chose. God chose the foolish, the weak. The word here for God choosing is found one other place in the Bible. And it's found in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. God chose us in him. The weak and the foolish. When did he do this? When we were born, when did he do this? When our parents conceived. One more time, when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world. That was further back than yesterday. Before he spoke the earth into existence, he chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose us in him. He set us apart. He set us apart. He gave us a future whereby we were to be holy and blameless before him. Without his choosing, we're doomed because we can't reach that standard of being holy and blameless. And actually, verse 4 points down to verse 5 because it gives us a clue or an idea how we get to that standard of being holy and blameless. Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's how we get to being holy and blameless before Him. According to our desires, is the way that passage finishes up, isn't it? No? It's according to His will. It's according to His good, perfect, righteous will. But 
But there was a special vessel that God used whenever he did all this. And that vessel's back in verse 4. In love. In love. In love for us. He predestined us through his love for us. And that is the vessel that he used was his very love. Now back to verse 27. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Look at the adjectives that Paul used to describe Christians. And it's good for us to to see this because I want to tell you if you're a Christian, you're one of these. And it will keep our pride in check, right? Foolish, weak, low, which verse am I in? Low, despised, and nothing. One more time. Foolish, weak, low, despised, and nothing. If we are Christians, that's what we are, according to worldly standards according to worldly standards. That's, that's what we are. And how many times do we attempt to escape these definitions or these adjectives? We work so hard to avoid being labeled as foolish, right? We work so hard to avoid being labeled as weak or low or as nothing. Everybody wants to be something or somebody or a big deal. But Paul says that's not what God's created us for. We are to embrace the fact that we're not. Because God's world and economy is different than the world. I've heard so many many times and so often atheists or different people saying that God or the need for God is for those who are weak-minded, weak people. Anybody else heard that? And they're saying that to be derogatory, right, to Christians. But it's true. Absolutely true. The need and the desire for God is for those who are not wise according to the world, who are not strong according to the world, but to those who are weak. Because God made it that way. He made it that way. It's His plan. Little do they know how true their words are. We know all this, though. We know this because it's inherent in our Christian lives and in our Christian walks. During our Christian walk, we wage war against ourselves, against that man of sin that drags us down. We wage war against pride. And it is at times when God utterly and thoroughly empties us of every bit of strength that we have in our body. When pain overcomes us to the point that we think we cannot endure anymore. It is at those times when we know we are closest with God. 
So we see this being played out in our own individual lives. When we feel like we have no hope, when there's nowhere else to turn, we realize our weakness, and when we see our weakness, we are most likely to be closer to God than we ever have been in our lives. It's not unique in our walks. If you recall Paul, he had a weakness, right? He had a thorn in his flesh, and that thorn dragged him down. And he prayed three times that it be removed. But God wouldn't remove it. And at the end of all that, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Such a dichotomy or an oxymoron of sorts. And how can you be both weak and strong at the same time? It is the flesh, the worldly weakness that Paul was describing and God's strength that was working through him, keeping him going, not of his own but totally of God. Paul writes that ultimately, in the end, the foolish will shame and humiliate the wise. You move on to the next, next one. The foolish will shame and humiliate the wise. The wisest of this world will someday see how foolish they really are. The strongest of the world will someday see how weak they really are. Aging kind of has a way of doing that on its own. Those who believe they are a big deal will realize the world will move right along without them. They're no better than anybody else that has lived before. There's going to be a rude awakening for a lot of people, unfortunately. But why did God do this? Why was his reasoning or plan, why did it come about in this manner? And Paul answers us that question very plainly, very simply. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's it. God created this plan to make sure that his glory is not stolen. He is God and we are not. He is deserving of being glorified. We are not. You guys have heard me quote it a jillion times. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we breathe. That's why we exist. We don't exist to be happy in our own rights. Right? We don't exist to go find out whatever it is that will bring us some sort of material happiness in this life. That's not why we exist. We exist to glorify God. We breathe to glorify God. We weren't created to jump from one source of self-glorification to the next. God created us in His image. We are His craftsmanship created to glorify Him. It should be in our heart's desire that He is glorified. We're going to see in chapter 10 
Paul writes, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Something so mundane as how we eat and drink, we should do that to glorify God. Conversely, fallen man, the world has a glory problem, doesn't it? Before we know Christ, we want to glorify one person, one person only, be this guy. Romans 1, 22 through 24, we went through this. Claiming to be wise, the wisdom of the world, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and the animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonor in the bodies among themselves. So claiming to be wise, they thought they were so smart, they became fools, and they traded this glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Now, it's sort of a hierarchy here. We have God at the very pinnacle of this triangle as being glorious and worthy of the glory, but we traded that for images that resemble mortal men, mortal being, we die, God doesn't die, he wasn't created, he is, we ain't going to get into that this morning. So we have below God, we have man that was created in his image, and then below that we have images that resemble man. So you've got a copy of a copy and yet another copy. Anybody ever see the movie Multiplicity with Michael Keaton? Anyone? Love the show. All right. So anyway, what happens is Michael Keaton's a very busy fellow. And he just doesn't have enough time in the day to do everything that he has to do at work, that his wife wants him to do, and just take care of everything. So he decides he's going to clone himself. So he clones himself one time, and that worked out pretty well. So he's thinking, I'm going to do it again. Well, there's a problem. Every time he cloned himself the DNA got a little bit messed up and the IQ level dropped a little bit and by the time he got to number three this guy's kind of a stumbling bumbling foolish three-year-old trapped in a man's body and it's sort of what happened here as I said don't take my analogies too far because they will fall apart but it's sort of what happens here we have God deserving of that glory, being perfectly pure and holy and righteous in every way he creates us in his image But yet, everything's obscured by sin, so we're really, there's very few times that we can truly see God in ourselves, but every once in a while, we do have those brilliant, shining moments from Him, and then we have created images that resemble us in our idols that we have, and it just keeps getting watered down to where the glory of God is gone. It's gone. And so what did God do? He gave them over to the lust of their flesh and to their debased minds. So we see that mankind in and of himself does not glorify God the way that God should be glorified. The glory of God and glorifying God is tantamount to the Christian faith. You've heard me say it, and I'll continue to say it, because the more we hear it, the more likely it is uh, for us to focus on it. I get distracted. 
I'm sure you guys get distracted too. I get distracted and I start thinking about the glory of Scott. And that's a problem. So you hear me mention the glory of God often and we have to mention it to ourselves often because at our lowest level we want the glory of me. But the glory of God should be essential and tantamount to our Christian lives every single day. And everything that we do and everything that we say, it should be our goal to glorify God. Now you say, well, if all I'm doing is glorifying God all day, isn't that going to get to be boring? What's in it for me? Because that's kind of who we are. But I will tell you that something miraculous happens when we focus our attention on glorifying God. John Piper so brilliantly points this out. When we focus our attention on glorifying God, then we receive joy. We receive joy like we've never received or seen before. The joy that lasts and doesn't go away the moment we get to the next whatever it is we're seeking. It's eternal joy. So God created us to glorify him and when we glorify him something wonderful happens is that we see everything in a different light when our focus is on glorifying God we see everything in a different light you wake up in the morning you open the the curtains you see the sun coming up if you're glorifying God that sun looks a whole lot different to you than if you're focused on glorifying yourself and whenever you're not focused on yourself and you're focused on glorifying God there is a lot of joy that comes in that moment. Everything that we do, if our focus is on glorifying God, God reciprocates that by giving us joy. By giving us joy. And it just, it's like a snowball effect. The more we glorify God, the more joy He instills within us. The more complete we feel, feel, the less we feel like we have to go out and glorify ourselves. And the more joy we have from glorifying God, the more it creates in us a desire to glorify God. It's a never-ending, self-feeding type frenzy that happens when our focus is on glorifying God. That's how and why he created all of this. Because if he chose those who were the smartest and those who were the strongest, God God gets no glory. It's all about this guy, right? So in order for him to receive the glory that only he deserves, only him, then he chooses the low, the foolish, and the weak. Gives us everything that we need to believe, everything that we need to sustain us during this walk, and everything that we need to ensure us that we're going to make it to the end. Because when we make it to the end, we got one person to blame or to thank, and that's God. He gets all the glory. And in turn, we get the joy of glorifying God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There you kind of have that golden chain in Romans 8.30. 
We are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God. So Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God from those that are chosen by God, from those who believe the righteousness, the being declared right, the being declared just, that's being saved, the sanctification becoming more Christ-like than holy, and the redemption, the glorification. Looks a whole lot like Romans 8.30. So that, as it is written... If you want to boast about something, if you want to brag about someone or something, boast or brag in the Lord because it is that boasting, it is that boasting, just like Paul said, that brings joy that is everlasting and never ends. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words from Paul, these words that make so much sense. Lord, we thank you for your grace that calls us to you. We thank you, Lord, that not only do you call, but you provide everything that we need in our faith, in obedience, in glorification to ensure that we make it to the end, that we make it to that wonderful dinner that will be awaiting us in the end. And Father, as we see your plan and we can just barely touch the surface of the depths of its wisdom, help us to stay focused on glorifying you with the words that we speak, with the thoughts that come through our minds, Lord, with the actions of our hands and feet, that no matter how this world tries to distract us, that we always come back and are grounded by the fact that we live to glorify you and it is when we are at the peak of glorifying you that we find joy that is eternal and everlasting. Let us seek that above all things and that you may be glorified in all that we do. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Join together in the closing hymn.